Good morning. Isn't that a great song? I mean, there's, there's just such a level of reality with that feeling of the climb's too steep and the ground is crumbling under my feet. And, and there are times, aren't there, where we are just so aware of our weakness, so aware of the fact that, man, if it is dependent upon me, it's not going to happen. It is just simply not going to happen. I'm weak. I'm broken. And yet what we can depend on is the strength of his hand, the Savior. He will carry us. No matter what we're walking through, no matter what we're facing, that he's sufficient. I don't think we can sing that enough. I don't think we can sing that often enough. I don't think we can remember that enough. It's, it's got to be the daily cry that we're, we're looking to him. Amen? Amen. Well, before we dig in, I want to make a number of you mad at me. Um, if you have recently bought a new Bible and decided to buy an ESV Bible because that's the Bible that we've been teaching from, I've got great news. You get get yet another Bible. Um, it's beginning this week, actually beginning the last time uh, I taught a couple of weeks ago, I, I switched over to a new translation. It's the CSB, the Christian Standard Bible. And um, I've, I've decided to make the switch from the ESV to the CSB, not because of any problems with the ESV. It's still a good translation. Don't, don't get rid of that Bible. It's a great Bible. I still use it. I, 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 you know, I have a number of different translations. But for Sunday mornings, I, I've decided to use the CSB um, for a couple of reasons. One, for its readability. It is an excellent translation that is also very easy to read. The ESV is a great translation, but man, it can be kind of clunky sometimes when you read it, which makes it hard to just really follow along with the text and really comprehend what's being said. The CSB flows much, uh, much more nicely, and um, I think it makes it easier for us to understand what's being said. The second reason is this, and, and this came up when we were studying through Ezekiel. I don't know if you guys remember, but when we got to, I think it was Ezekiel chapter 27. It was that chapter where I gave a parental advisory warning before the message. Remember that one? The one where you were squirming because I kept saying certain words. It just felt really uncomfortable uh, being spoken out loud in church. Um, but they weren't in the ESV. And that's my problem with it, is the ESV, along with a number of other translations, there are times when there is a word that is very clear in the original language. It's very clear what that word is, but because that isn't a word that we're commonly comfortable hearing spoken in church, they soften it. They generalize it. Uh, they, they choose another word that maybe we'll be more comfortable with. But what we have to consider is that if we do that, we are editing God. The reason God uses a phrase or a sentence or a word that we're uncomfortable with is because he wants us in that moment to be uncomfortable because he's saying something strong to us. And we dare not edit God. And the CSB um, you might call me a coward. I often call Bible translators who do this cowards. I chose 
to wait till the end of Ezekiel before I made this switch. <laughs> because, man, Ezekiel's brutal in places. And, and so, it, I actually, I wanted to finish out um, the study that we are currently in. And now that we are starting a new study this week, I'm, I'm going to be switching over to the CSB. Just so you know. So if you just bought a new Bible and you bought an ESV, I'm sorry, keep it. It's a good Bible. Um, we replaced the Bibles in the back. So if you want to follow along in a CSB, you can do so by grabbing one of the Bibles in the back. They're now CSBs. So that's it this morning. We do begin a new study through the Gospel of Luke. Longest book in the New Testament. Um, so grab your Bibles, open up to Luke chapter 1. Since it's a really long book, we're going to start off really fast by taking four verses this morning. And, uh, <laughs> but we really need to understand some things about the Gospel of Luke uh, before we really jump in. Um, it's the Gospel according to Luke. It's one of the four Gospels. Now, I say that, but I, I want to clarify something. We only have one gospel message, even though we have four gospel accounts. Well, we have four different authors who have four different backgrounds and four different perspectives, each one of which has shared the, the same gospel message, the good news about Jesus. And, and each of them does it differently. And Matthew Matthew, being a Jew and being a disciple of Jesus, um, you know, he comes to this with a very distinct perspective and, and background. And, and he writes to people who are like him, who are Jews. And then there's Mark. Mark gives us what we believe to be Peter's account of the life of Jesus. Now, Peter, like Matthew, was a Jew, and he was a, a disciple of Jesus as well. But, but Mark writes not for the Jews, but for the, the early church in the city of Rome. So he, he gives a little bit of a different perspective on the life of Jesus. And then there's John. John, also a Jew. John, also a disciple of Jesus. Um, but he writes after the other three Gospels have already been written. And so John fills in some of the holes. He fills in some of the gaps and he tells us uh, some things that the other Gospels leave out. And then there's Luke, the, the book that we're going to be looking at. Luke is not a Jew. He's a Gentile. He wasn't a disciple of Jesus, but rather we believe that he was a traveling companion of the Apostle Paul. He was a slave. He, he was a, a, a doctor. He was an outsider. He didn't experience these things, but rather he talked to eyewitnesses. He did research and he interviewed to find out what had happened. And it seems that Luke writes not to the Jews, but to the Gentile world as an outsider writing to those who are on the outside. Now, each one of the Gospels describes for us the life and the ministry of Jesus. But they each give us a different facet. They give us a, a different look at it. Together, you put it all together and it gives us a complete picture of the Savior. A, a far more detailed picture than we ever could have had if we just had one Gospel account. And though all the Gospels give us the life of Jesus from a different angle... 
they don't contradict, okay? So we have four gospel accounts. We have one gospel message, and, and these four accounts don't contradict one another, but rather they compile, they come together uh, to describe for us the Savior, God in human flesh, come to save us. They all tell us the same story, and they all tell it from different points of view. They all start off differently, too. Matthew begins with a genealogy. That's the family tree of Jesus. And he starts with Abraham, the father of the Jews, because he's writing to Jews. And he goes through the line of King David to get to Jesus, who is the Jewish Messiah, the Savior, the eternal King of the Jews. Mark, on the other hand, he doesn't give a genealogy at all because he presents Jesus as the servant, the, the great servant. Servants don't have genealogies. He came to serve and to die in our place for our sin. John's gospel, like Mark's, it doesn't include a genealogy either, but it's for a very different reason than Mark. Mark didn't include a genealogy because he he presented Jesus as a servant. But John is presenting him as God in human flesh. And so he doesn't provide a genealogy as well. So we have all these different angles, all these different facets, but we have one gospel message. Now, as we consider all of this, we're going to be focused just on Luke. We're going to take a look at Luke's story and what, what makes it peculiar? What makes it different from the others? Let's, let's do this. Let's take a look at the beginning of Luke. Let's look at these first four verses together. Will you do this? Will you open your Bibles to Luke chapter 1? And I'm going to read the first four verses. I'd ask you to stand and you can follow along in your Bibles. Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Luke says, Many have undertaken to compile a narrative about the events that have been fulfilled among us, just as the original eyewitnesses and servants of the word handed them down to us. It also seemed good to me, since I have carefully investigated everything from the very first to write to you an orderly sequence, most honorable Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things about which you have been instructed. Father, I pray that as we open your word, that you would teach us. God, that, that we would understand the things that are written. And God, that by the work of your spirit, you would take them and, and speak them into our lives. God, I pray that we could learn God, that we could be changed. That your word would do its work in our lives. We give you this time, Lord. We ask you to work in it. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Well, we started off saying that we're going to be looking at the Gospel of Luke. But the question is, how do we know that Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke? Now, some of you are thinking, hello, Captain Obvious. It says the Gospel of Luke. But here's the thing. The original writing of the Gospel did not include the title. Those titles are something that we added later on. Uh, the Gospel of Luke never says who it's written by. So how do we know? 
How do we know who wrote the Gospel of Luke if it never says? Well, we have to follow the clues. We have to look at what it says. And one of the curious things about the Gospel of Luke that it starts off with, with the writer saying this, that he's writing to someone else by the name of Theophilus. He says, most excellent Theophilus. Okay, he's writing to this, uh, this person. We don't know who this person is, but he's writing the book to Theophilus. Well, that doesn't really help us except for the fact that the book of Acts starts off much the same way. The book of Acts starts off also saying, hey, I remember what I wrote to you before about the life of Jesus, most excellent Theophilus, and now I'm writing more to you to tell you about the things that Jesus continued to do through his disciples. Okay, so whoever wrote the book of Luke also wrote the book of Acts. Okay, well, that's great. The problem is, though, the book of Acts never tells us who wrote it. But, but, there's a curious detail in the book of Acts. Partway through the book of Acts, there's a change in pronouns. Not a big deal, right? Who, who cares about a pronoun? Well, this is significant because as you're marching through the book of Acts, the writer says they did this, and they did that, and he went there, and he went here, and then partway through, at a certain point, he changes to say, we went here, and we did this, and we experienced that. And that point is when a certain man, a Greek man, joins Paul on the journey. The man who became uh, not only Paul's travel companion, but his physician as well, the man we know as Luke. So Luke joins the Apostle Paul on his journey and becomes his companion and travels with him and enters the story at that point. Now Luke, uh, Luke isn't a Jew. He isn't from Israel. He's, he's from the Greek culture. Um, he was probably a slave and the reason we think that he was a slave is that he was a doctor. Okay, now if someone's a doctor today, that's a prestigious thing, right? We think, ooh, he's a doctor. Oh, we call him doctor, such and such. But not in that day. In that day, uh, a slave would be a doctor. Uh, if you had some slaves, you would want one who would care for your health. So you would designate him to become the doctor and he would begin to care for your health. So it wasn't a prestigious thing, but it was rather something that someone who had been a slave would be. So Luke is a Greek. He's not a Jew. He's probably a slave, not a free man. He's a Gentile. And so in these things of God, he would have been an outsider. And yet for an outsider, he sure seems to know a lot of scripture. You know, as you read through the, the Gospel of Matthew, it's no surprise that Matthew again and again quotes scriptures that show us that Jesus was the Jewish Messiah, okay? Matthew, a Jew, writing to the Jews about their Messiah, he quotes a lot of Old Testament scriptures that show that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. But here we have Luke, a man who came from the Greek world, a man who was a Gentile, he was an outsider. And yet he knows scripture and he quotes scripture and he talks about prophecy that Jesus has fulfilled. Well, what's going on with that? Well, here's the thing with Luke. 
Luke wasn't telling us about his gods. He wasn't telling us about his culture. He was telling us about what he found to be true. What he discovered that was real. It wasn't just how he was raised. It isn't just, well, it's what I grew up with. But it's what he discovered to be true. And so Luke points us to scriptures. To scriptures like um, Isaiah. Isaiah 7.14 that says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. He says, See, the virgin will conceive and have a son and name him Emmanuel. Emmanuel, a name that means God with us. And so Luke tells us that this is something that God said he was going to do hundreds of years before Jesus. And then in Luke chapters 1 and 2, he tells us how God fulfilled this, how God did what he said he was going to do. He does the same thing, Isaiah 53, 5. He talks about the fact that the Messiah would be pierced because of our rebellion. He would be crushed because of our iniquities. Luke tells us that the Old Testament prophet had said that the Messiah would come and that he would suffer for our sin, not for his own, that he would pay the penalty for our rebellion against God. And then in Luke chapter 23, he tells us how God played this out, how Christ went to the cross on our behalf. So here's Luke. He's an outsider, but he's found something to be true, something to be real. And that's what he's telling us about. And he's telling us how God had said, this is what I'm going to do. And then God played it out. You know, I think it, we look at, at Luke and he was, he was an unexpected character in this play. You know, it, it makes sense that John would be there. A Jew, you know, someone who had been a disciple of Jesus. Peter, it makes sense. There he was living in that area where Jesus was doing his ministry, became a follower of Jesus. Even Matthew Okay, Matthew had been a tax collector. He, he, he had not been a particularly religious man. And yet when Jesus called him, Matthew came. But, but he had a Jewish background. He had a Jewish heritage. It makes sense. But here's Luke. He's the odd man out. He, he's the outcast. He's the outsider. And yet God grabs hold of him. Here's Luke who at some point in his life is probably a slave. He's got to be looking at his life. And as sometimes we often look at our life, if you're older, old enough to look back a little bit and wonder what happened, <laughs> the, the things, they haven't gone exactly like you maybe thought they were going to go when you were younger. The path of your life has taken some some odd turns, some unexpected twists. Hey, maybe, uh, like me, you look back and think, well, I never would have seen that coming. And I'm not sure why it happened. And there are things in life that, that we just ask God, I, okay, I, I don't get this. I don't get what you did there. That isn't what I was shooting for. <laughs> That, that isn't what I was aiming for. And yet this is this thing that you've brought into my life. And you think, oh, God, why? 
Why are you doing this? And I think, I think of Luke, maybe the day before he met Paul, saying, I don't get this. I don't get why you've taken me on the path that I'm on. I see the truth in this God of Israel. Why couldn't I be born a Jew? Why couldn't I be an insider? Why couldn't I be a free man? Why couldn't I be on the inside with all of this? And yet, God prepared Luke perfectly for the way that he wanted to use Luke. The path of his life made no sense to Luke. But I am confident of this. It made perfect sense to God. Because God knows what he's about. And you know what, friends? He knows what he's about with us too. God prepared Luke as an outsider to bring the gospel to those who are outside. And you know what? God is preparing you on whatever path life has taken you on. Whatever road he has led you down, he is preparing you to be his man or his woman there. There was no one else who could have filled Luke's shoes the way Luke did. You know, I, I think Paul had to be thankful for Luke all the time. Paul needed a doctor, didn't he? I mean, the guy was always getting beaten, you know, whipped, shipwrecked, whatever. You know, you think that guy needed a really good medical plan, okay? Probably didn't have one, but he did have Luke. You think God wanted a man who would come from the outside because Christ died not just for the Jews, but for the whole world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And who better to bring the gospel to outsiders than an outsider himself. Who better to bring the gospel into your world than you? You're already there. You're already there. You're the one who knows your coworkers, your classmates. You're the one who knows your family members. You're the one that God has prepared and placed to be his man, his woman, his ambassador, wherever it is you are. Well, what did Luke write? He didn't write a novel. He didn't write a historical fiction. It wasn't a religious allegory. Luke wrote, rather, as a researcher, um, as an investigator. Now, you might wonder, how did Luke investigate these things? It says that he looked into all these things very carefully. I mean, maybe he Googled it, right? You ever make some definitive statement on some subject? You know, people are talking about something. You'll say, well, actually, the way it works is blah, 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 blah. And you're, you're, you know how this works because you read about half of a, a, a Wikipedia article on it once. And you remember about a quarter of it, right? And so you, you are now an expert on that field, whatever it is. I don't think that's how it worked with Luke. I don't think he Googled anything. I don't think he read Wikipedia about Jesus. He had to talk to the people who were there. He interviewed the eyewitnesses. He, he spoke to the people who were there 
for those events that he wrote about. Now, that's a curious thing. That's a curious thing. How did Luke have access to those people? Well, he lived in that time. And he was a traveling companion of Paul. Paul went to Jerusalem. Uh, there was a two-year period where Paul was imprisoned in Caesarea Maritima, uh, which is just along the coast of Israel. And so he would have been in that region. He would have had opportunity uh, to, to pursue the people who had walked with Jesus, who had experienced these things with him, to interview them and to, to record their accounts and to be able to record the things that took place. Now, it's interesting because you think Luke wrote this gospel, but he wrote it not um, as a work of literature to be published, but as a, but as a letter. Right, remember, he addressed it to someone, to this guy by the name of Theophilus. And so he writes to this guy by the name of Theophilus, but we don't really know who Theophilus is. And there's really... Uh, there, there are a lot of options of what it could be. As many commentators as there are, there's that many opinions about who this Theophilus guy would be. Really, I think there's three possibilities that we can consider, and they're, they're rather general. First of all, he, he was a real person, an actual specific, uh, probably a, a Roman official who had become a believer. He had become a believer in Christ, and so Luke writes to give him a fuller story of the life of Jesus, and then later on he writes to fill him in uh, on the history of the early church. It seems like a lot for one guy, but it, you know, it could have been that it was just this one guy that Luke just wanted him to know the story. The name Theophilus, though, it means friend of God friend of God. It's possible that this is a literary device, that, that Luke is writing it to all of the friends of God in the Gentile world, that he's addressing this to all those outsiders who are looking to the Lord, who are looking to the Messiah, who have come to faith in Christ so that they might understand the life and ministry of Jesus, so that they might understand what took place in the early church. So it could be that Luke is writing it to all those who are like him, who are outsiders, who have come into the family of God by putting their faith in Christ. Now there's a, a third thing that it could be, and uh, I can't prove that this is what it is. It's the one that I like the best, but probably not because it has the most evidence. I just think it's a, a cool thought. It could be that Theophilus is actually a Roman official who is presiding over the trial of Paul. Because remember, Paul is on his way to be tried in Rome over his faith in Christ. And it could be that the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts are actually friend of the court briefs. They're, they're information for the court to consider to understand the story of Jesus and the history of the early church, that they might consider these things as they render their judgment about Paul. It's interesting, as, as I was looking at these first four verses, and um, we returned from Israel this last week. And one of the phrases that 
we returned to over and over again as we were um, traveling from place to place in Israel, it, it just, it, it kept popping into my mind as I was looking at these first four verses about how Luke had, had researched everything and how he had looked into these things and he wanted to present this very clearly. And that's this, that the Bible is filled with real people from real places who partook in real events and are presenting real truths to us. You see, we live in a world that is convinced that the Bible is filled with nothing but myths and fables and fairy tales. But it isn't. It isn't. None of the things in Scripture are myths or legends or fairy tales. They are real people and real places and real events. And, it, you know, it was just amazing over the last week plus as we would travel from place to place and we would go to places that the Scriptures talk about. We went to a lot of places that we're going to talk about through the Gospel of Luke. You know, Luke's going to talk about the, the city of Capernaum. It's the city where Peter lived. It's the city that Jesus operated out of as he ministered throughout Galilee. And we visited Capernaum. It's one of the places that we went. We stood in a synagogue that, though it's actually a fourth century synagogue there, it's built on the foundations of the first century synagogue, the synagogue from the time of Jesus. We went to a place called Magdala. And maybe you remember Mary of Magdalene. Remember Mary of Magdalene? She's from the village of Magdala. And we went there to the village of Magdala and we saw the remains of a synagogue that, that's a first century synagogue. And what you're looking at there is the tile floor, the mosaic floor of the first century synagogue. That's the floor they walked on in the day of Jesus. And I can tell you this. Certainly, Jesus taught in that synagogue as he traveled throughout Galilee. That means he walked on that floor. Now, we don't worship the floor. We don't get all weird about it. But we do think about this. It's a real place where real things happen. The things the Bible speaks of took place in a real context. It's not fantasy. It's not legend. It's reality. One of the people that, that Luke will introduce us to, one of the big characters, is a guy by the name of Herod the Great. Herod the Great was insane. He was a genius, but he was an evil genius. He ruled over Judea from 37 BC, so from well before the time of Christ, until 4 AD. So just after the time of Christ. Hey, you'll remember Herod the Great. He's the one who ordered the slaughter of all the babies of Bethlehem because he heard that a new king had been born to the Jews. And he didn't want any competition. Well, he didn't just kill the babies of Bethlehem. He killed his own sons as well at one point. He thought they were getting ready to rebel against him. So he killed his favorite wife and his sons. The guy was evil to the core. He was also a genius. And he was a real person. Uh, we know a lot about Herod because the thing that Herod did over and over again was build fortresses. He, he was paranoid. He was always worried that someone was going to take over. He was always worried that someone was going to take his place. 
And that's why he slaughtered the babies in Bethlehem. That's why he murdered his sons. And so he built fortresses, places that he could go. Um, one of the ones we went to was a place called the Herodium. The Herodium is, is an amazing thing. It basically, Herod saw two hills outside Jerusalem. And he said, I like those hills. Except they're not big enough, so pick up that hill and put it on top of this one, okay? And then dig a hole down through the middle of it and build a fortress there. And it is amazing. Well, what's left of it is amazing. The people hated him so much, they absolutely destroyed it after he died, not long after he died. Especially his tomb, he chose to be buried there. They smashed his tomb up into little tiny bits because they hated him so bad. But it's an amazing place, and it's a place that we can go. It's a real place that we can visit. See, I was there. <laughs> I was telling the first service, that's not George Clooney, that's me. And someone said I, that it, that made me old, because I said George Clooney, that I'm supposed to say somebody else, and I can't remember who it was, so I guess I'm old. Um, <laughs> Herod didn't just build that. He, he built a place called Caesarea Maritima. It's on the, on the Mediterranean Sea, and there, there's the remains of his palace that has been washed into the ocean now, though you can still pick up hunks of marble. Okay, marble is not native to Israel. So when you find a hunk of marble on that beach, it's a piece of his palace that, that has been broken up. Uh, we went to uh, Masada, another fortress palace that he built that's up on a cliff. And, and these are real places where real things happened. Yeah, Herod is the one who built the Temple Mount. He took the, the mountaintop where the temple was and built a platform over it and remodeled the temple, and that's the temple that Jesus would have gone to. You know, it's, it's, it's one of the places that we visit that we know that Jesus would have walked here. We, we visited the southern steps. Those are the southern steps heading up to the temple. Uh, there's our group walking up the very stone steps that would have been the same steps that Jesus would have walked up. Now again, we don't like get all weird and kiss the rocks or something like that, but we can know this. This isn't a story. This isn't a fantasy. This isn't just a religious allegory. This is reality. This is reality. And that's what Luke is telling us. That's what Luke is telling us in these first four verses. He's saying, friends, what I'm writing to you is real. I've checked this out. I've researched it. I've organized it for you. This is reality. This isn't just a religious allegory. This isn't like the Greek gods that I grew up with where we just made the gods up to be just like us, just bigger versions of us with bigger hangups than we have that like to do the same sins that we like to do. No, this is reality. This is God intervening into history. What Luke is saying is, this is real. Real people, real places, real events, real truth that demands a real response. As we read through the book of Luke, as we read the gospel message, the reality 
of God intervening into human history. Let's remember where Luke starts us. Let's remember where he begins. That what we're dealing with here is reality. And we've got to respond to it with the reality of our lived lives. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you, Lord, that our faith is not based on fiction or fantasy or legend. It isn't just our fertile imaginations, but it's the reality of your intervention into our lives and our history. God, I thank you for Luke, for an outsider who reaches to those of us who are outside, who offers your love and your grace and your forgiveness to those of us who, who haven't been on the inside. And I thank you for the reality of the things we read. That our faith can be based on reality. It's not just a feeling. It's not just a hope. But it's a hope based on fact. Your intervention. You inserting yourself into our lives and into our history. May we have confidence and God, may we respond, not just in theory, but in reality, the living of our lives. Oh God, I pray it in Jesus' name.